0: Before starting today's episode, a quick message from today's episode sponsored, Bluegrass Retina Consultants. Bluegrass Retina Consultants is in Lexington, Kentucky. They are looking for a new surgical retina doctor. Come live in one of America's best mid-sized cities with amenities such as excellent schools, affordable living, central location with daily non-stop flights to 17 urban and beach destinations, a vibrant downtown culture, and a famous bluegrass natural beauty. Practice includes unmatched base salary, lucrative bonus and benefits, and fantastic schedule flexibility for a doctor wishing less than a full-time position. The ideal candidate will likely be one to four years post-fellowship and family-oriented or else in mid-career seeking work-life balance. For more information, please contact Dr. Angelia Thompson at 859-333-7894. That's 859-333-7894. Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. Oh, we're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 298, we are back one year after releasing a podcast entitled Race and Diversity in America and in Ophthalmology. That was a group discussion with doctors Tamara Fountain, Leon Herndon, and Basil Williams. And at the time that we recorded that podcast, uh, on record, um, it was suggested by uh, one of the speakers that we come back in a year and revisit these topics, revisit where we are um, in medicine, in ophthalmology, and as a country. And so we are back to discuss this essentially a year later. um, I thank the three correspondents for their opinions. I thank all the people who gave feedback Um, about that first podcast episode. Uh, Remember, financial disclosures when they're relevant are always listed in the episode description. You can also find a um, link to go to the American Academy of ophthalmology website and claim CMA credits for this podcast episode and many other podcast episodes. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be back with three uh, previous correspondents to discuss an issue we discussed uh, almost exactly a year uh, to the date of this podcast release and recording um, in alphabetical order. Joining me first, I have Dr. Tamara Fountain, the current president of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and a professor of ophthalmology at Rush University. Dr. Fountain, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thank you. Uh,
0: next, we have Dr. Leon Herndon, uh, who's a professor of ophthalmology at Duke University. Dr. Herndon, thanks again for coming back.
2: Hey, great. Hey, great to be here.
0: And last but not least, um, frequent um, correspondent on the podcast after Basil Williams joining us uh, from Cincinnati Eye Institute. Basil, welcome. Jay, thanks so much for having me back. So um, a year ago, we released a podcast, which was episode 240, which seems like a, a long, long time ago. It's been a long year. A lot of things have happened. And it was titled Race in America and Improving Diversity in Ophthalmology with our three correspondents, Drs. Fountain, Herndon, and Williams. Um, and we said, actually, it was interesting. I don't remember who first suggested it. I, I, I would hate to give credit to the wrong person, but I remember someone suggested, you know, why don't we come back in a year and see where, where are we as a country? Where are we as a field? What has changed? What sort of things have we learned? Cause it was obviously a very tumultuous summer. And we didn't know what the next year would bring, especially with COVID-19 kind of casting a shadow over everything as well. So, um, I'll let Dr. Fountain go first. So if you look back, it's been a year since we last met over the phone. What are kind of the biggest take homes? You know, a year ago, we had a lot of the protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder as a country. This year, we had the conviction just a couple months ago, of Corey Chauvin, and and maybe some closure, maybe not. Um, Unfortunately, there's been other events that have happened as well. What are kind of your big take homes when you look back at this year as it pertains to, you know, race in America, and then we can kind of dive into diversity and ophthalmology and anything you've seen.
1: I remember last year we were wondering, we thought all of us on the podcast thought that there was something organically different about the movement that we were seeing at the time and we all had hopes that we would be able to make progress in this area where in past in the past we might not have been able to. And the I believe that, you know, as with any news cycle, we don't see the fervor now that we did last summer. We don't see the protests. Uh, It's not in the news on a daily basis, but I am encouraged that the topic has had staying power and we are seeing the debate, the ongoing debate and discussion of race in America not only in medicine, but across the board, as it relates to housing, as it relates to law enforcement and criminal justice. And so I think that it is still top of mind. And I think that people, many people are genuinely interested in trying to make a difference. And I think that is still the case one year later. So I think that's a positive sign. We, we still have lots of work to do, but I am encouraged that we are still talking about it and people will hopefully still be tuning into this podcast to get caught up.
0: Dr. Herndon, how about you? Um, anything to add on top of what Dr. Fountain said and kind of your impressions of the last year? Uh,
2: what, a, what a year it's been, Jay. It's uh, certainly <laughs> yeah. been. And we, when I look back, uh, when we last met, I remember Dr. Fountain. Tamara was really instrumental in putting out a statement from the academy that stated that racism had no place in our in our, in our academy. And we've all been very busy on the Basel myself, Tamara, uh, because there are very few ophthalmologists who are African American. And all three of us, I'm sure, have been called to uh, attend meetings. I certainly have attended several Zoom sessions as we tackle this thing called structural racism and you know reckoning with this. And uh, there have been so many positive uh, attributes that have come out of this. Uh, The American Glaucoma Society has uh, sponsored two uh, social justice webinars. We have a third one uh, coming up on Asian American issues. Um, It's just been um, really uh, very heartening to see that this does still have staying power. And I I believe now, as I believe a year ago, that this is different. And uh, I'm certainly seeing a change and uh, a change in the right direction.
0: Uh, Dr. Williams, and I'm going to keep the, I like to say Dr. Everyone, Basil, it's hard for me to call you Dr. Williams just because we've known each other so long, uh, but I'm going to be consistent here. I I, I think that um, there's some great points raised by, by both of them. And I do think there is some difference, right? That's what everyone talked about last year. And there does seem to be some staying power. Um, maybe, you know, it'd be hard to know the exact numbers. There still are certain events, um, just like, you know, just a few months ago in the exact same city where you know, George Floyd was murdered, we had yet another isu- issue of a young uh, black man who was killed. And, you know, that begs the question, is it is it different? Or, or how long is it going to take for those practical concerns? Now to besides people being awareness, So it's like awareness comes and then action comes later, usually when you talk about any sort of movement. I guess it's too much to expect that the actions would change that quickly. But I I think I do agree that at least the there's not the same complacency maybe as there was a year or two ago.
3: Yeah, Jay, so you raise a great point, and and I think it is really important to understand that things do seem different this time, and I think there's a lot of energy and a lot of motivation across the country, um, both outside and inside of medicine, and specifically in ophthalmology, which we'll talk about in a little bit, about improving some of the challenges we have from a social justice perspective uh, and from a diversity and inclusion perspective as well. That being said, things did not get the way they are overnight, and they are not going to change overnight either. So the goal um, is to continue uh, discussing this, working on policy changes, um, implementing Uh, new strategies to try and change things for the future. It does not mean that we accept um, what is still happening uh, across the country in and out of medicine. and, and i think because of what's gone on over the last year like you said there's a lot more awareness people are paying a lot more attention and i think people are focusing a lot harder on solutions to the problem uh to the problems and, and working uh towards improving things so um, i think we're in a bit of a different place even though events are still happening there are still challenges we have not overnight become as diverse as we should have we have not completely eliminated structural racism that is not how happened, obviously, but we're moving in the right direction.
0: You know, one of the fascinating things we saw with COVID-19, and and again, certain things should be controversial, and it's okay to have controversy, but something shouldn't, was how certain things regarding public health and safety with COVID-19 became quote-unquote politicized, such as wearing a mask or getting a vaccine that's been, you know, vetted and and has been proven in trials to be um, helpful, preventing spread and also protecting individuals. And, And unfortunately, in some ways, Uh, whether or not it's on one side or the other, structural racism almost became a little bit a political issue. I wouldn't say that the idea of racism being a political issue, but whether or not it should be discussed or whether or not it should be, uh, you know, something that should be brought to public consciousness or not, somehow became sort of another kind of polarizing issue. And, And maybe that's a reflection of where we are as a society with social media and the way information spreads and how people have become more and more polarized over time. But Dr. Fountain, you know, one of the conversations that came out after we, um, released the podcast, we got a lot of feedback. And I think it's important to to recognize feedback. And some of the feedback was just simply that this is beyond the Academy's reach, that this is a physician society that in the Academy doesn't produce these episodes, but they co-release them and for CME credit. But that, that maybe this is not a, a, an issue that doctors should be speaking of. We're not experts on social anthropology, that we're not People equipped, and that our issues should be focused more on medical issues rather than on social dynamics. Um, you, you are the president of the academy, and you wear many hats. You speak as yourself, as an individual. You have your you speak from the half of Russian University when you're speaking, you know, or taking care of your patients. But you also speak on behalf of the academy and your role as president. What are your thoughts on that? Like, and this was maybe similar to: Should physicians get involved in gun violence? Should physicians get involved in maybe even more tangible health things like? for example, vaccination or marrying masks, it becomes sort of a sliding scale when all these issues become politicized. So do you think there is a role for medical organizations to to take a stand? And then how do you kind of respond to those who say, well, this should not be the stance of a medical society?
1: Well, in part of your question, you mentioned that some people had said that we don't have any business talking about race. We should be focused on the clinical care of our patients. And to that, I would simply say that there is an a- absolute direct relationship between race and health outcomes. And that's why there is nobody better to speak to these issues than physicians. And so when you talk about, if you could, if you could wave a wand and decrease all the disparities in glaucoma care in our country based on race, just think for a moment, how that would impact the health of all of our patients if we could simply do that one thing. And so people may not recognize how closely tied your zip code is to your health outcomes. And I think many of us have a difficult time recognizing how a large percentage of the American population lives because we we, we surround ourselves with people who are similar mm-hmm. to ourselves and we don't recognize the, the kind of challenges that other people have. And so that is our responsibility. And as an Academy, it is our role to speak up for the patient. That is our tagline after all, protecting sight and empowering lives. And this is how we can do it. And we know that there's a relationship between The organization and the culture of the organization, and the the processes and the programs and the educational resources that are made available to our members, and so we we treat a diverse population of people, and we have to keep in mind that we have to recognize and respect that diversity to take better care of our patients.
0: Great, yeah, I completely agree, and and Dr. Hernan, love to hear your thoughts on the same issue and. Again, one of the things that was brought up, and part of this is I think that it, it can get really difficult when people feel like they are being criticized or they're misinterpreting the image, the message. The message is not a criticism of physicians who are non-minorities, it's not to incite guilt in those people, but rather to bring light to a message, for example, about, in, about getting more URMs, for example, into ophthalmology, uh, into certain fields of medicine. It's not to criticize those who are not URMs or, or to make them feel guilty, but it's more about... How can we improve and get better? And I think sometimes those things can get confused, and people can take things personally when they should not be taken personally.
2: Jay, well, it's clear that inequity in glaucoma services calls sight. So it's incumbent upon us, we physicians, to to address these issues. As Tamara stated, there's so much we can do in the glaucoma piece to to make changes. I'm reminding of a paper by Angela Elaman, University of Michigan, where she looked at glaucoma services for a Medicaid population versus the commercial population. And she looked at uh, those patients who were newly diagnosed over a 15 month period of time and found that those Medicaid patients received services, OCT, visual fields, disc photography at a much lower rate than the commercial providers and payers. But if you look at that Medicaid group, those blacks uh, who were on the Medicaid, uh, Medicaid group did far worse than other Medicaid patients. So there's something there that speaks to structural racism. I'm also reminded of the former deputy editor of the Journal of uh, of JAMA, who stated in a podcast that uh, physicians really didn't want to talk about race. They thought that uh, Mm -hmm. many physicians were offended by the concept that uh, physicians are racist. And I think it was really tone deaf. In fact, uh, he resigned after the uproar, after those comments. So it's truly incumbent upon us to, to take a stand uh, so that patients will have a better outcome, including a uh, better visual outcome uh, in, in glaucoma and other disciplines within ophthalmology.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And, and Basil, I'd love to get your thoughts on that as well. And I think, again, part of the issue is just people seeing this as binary. It's like, well, if, if you are talking about him, then, because we're talking about it, then we're implying that physicians are racist if we say that these patients have worse outcomes. I mean, there are so many other reasons for it. It's not so much about assigning blame as finding solutions. Yet somehow, again, I think people can be sensitive to it because, again, no one wants to feel like they're they're giving bad care. People didn't go into medicine to provide subpar or worse care to one group over another.
3: Yeah, I think it's a really challenging subject for people uh, who don't think about this regularly to be faced with the conversation, um, because many times you start reassessing or analyzing your own behavior. And and there is a natural tendency to, to have some level of guilt or think about, well, am I doing enough? And, and perhaps even to be very, very defensive about that. But I think the key is to focus on this, to have this conversation come up, so people can be aware. There was a conversation uh, that I recently had when we were talking about clinical trials, and we were talking about disparities uh, in the patients that are involved in clinical trials, and mm-hmm. how that'll affect uh, what we tell patients or or how well uh, patients respond to treatments if they're not tried, uh, if uh, they're not included, if all patients are not included in these studies. And one of the people. Uh, involved in the conversation uh, said that one of their practice members didn't realize that there was a difference or or disparities in which patients were being recruited. And so I think if we are not specifically paying attention to it, if we are not having conversations about it, many people will not naturally be aware of these challenges. People may not be aware of the difference in care that's being provided from a glaucoma perspective or from a retina perspective. People may not be aware that we are not um, matching as many uh, underrepresented minorities into ophthalmology programs. People might not be aware that by doing that, that also affects the care of patients. Uh, Due to a a, uh, large number of factors. And so I think if we don't have that conversation, people may not be aware of it. By having that conversation, people may be uncomfortable with it initially, but it at least sparks the thought. And with that, we can actually start analyzing our behavior individually and as a group. We can analyze our behavior as a field of ophthalmology. And that will allow us to make some actual changes by focusing on that. And I think one of the things that has changed since uh, last year is I know uh, the Academy in general uh, is starting to look at numbers so we can actually have some statistics on where we stand. So that way we can chart our progress for the future. We are looking at this in retina as well, and we are paying attention to it so we can see uh, if we're moving in the right direction. And so I think the conversation is just just the beginning. It's just the first part of things so people can be aware. And then using that awareness, uh, we start to do more.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't really add much on top of that. That's fantastic. And you referenced there's a recent paper. Um, we're not going to go too deep into it. We actually have it coming up in a, in a journal club as part of other articles. But um, Shriji Patel is a friend of the program, senior author in a paper called Racial Ethnic Disparities in Ophthalmology Clinical Trials, resulting in US FDA approval, drug approval from 2000 to 2020. And the, the take home message is to quote the, the conclusion without diving in was that under um, Black, Hispanic, or Latinx, and other non-white participants were underrepresented in clinical trials leading to FDA ophthalmology drug approvals compared with the expected disease burden and the racial ethnic distribution in the United States, um, although it has the dimension that has improved over time. And that's sort of, you know, and Dr. Herndon, Dr. Grant, and I'll let you, you know maybe I'll let um, Dr. Herndon go first, is one of the things we talked about last time was, okay, one of the ways to solve this problem or is the mismatch is potentially to have more underrepresented minorities in ophthalmology. And, and that is a process that won't be fixed in a year, right? That relies on recruitment for people to apply and giving them resources to apply and match, and then having them interview at places, become trained ophthalmologists and go out. So that's that's actually a long-term play. And so it's hard to say where we are a, a year from now, but I'll say anecdotally, uh, one of the things I've seen, Dr. Herndon, is, is there definitely has been tangible efforts. I would think both on the micro level within our own university, and I think on a macro level, we'll see more and more programs. And I, I, For example, I just saw Duke University has um, an, an opportunity for underrepresented minority to come in and do research at Duke University and have that funded. There's more and more of these opportunities that are coming up in an effort to correct this disparity. So I do think there are some tangible changes, although we may not see the, the ripple effects for a few years. Yeah, I think it's so
2: important, Jay. Um, minorities make up uh, about 6% of ophthalmologists. african Americans, about 3% based on data from uh, Roy Wilson's paper from 2016. And there are some strides. There's a a picture that went viral that I took in the OR last fall, uh, first time in my 25 years at Duke where my whole training training staff was Black. In fact, African-American men. Uh, Myself, uh, I had two medical students doing research with me, uh, a Black uh, glaucoma fellow and Black glaucoma resident. And I really captured that moment because I, uh, I never have seen that or witnessed that before. And I got so many positive vibes from the picture going around. But I say that to say we, we are seeing some changes in the right direction. The reason I think it's important to diversify the workforce is because something something called racial discordance. Many studies have uh, suggested that uh, blacks may do more poorly than whites when it comes to glaucoma adherence. Another study says that Blacks and Hispanics do poorer than whites when it comes to keeping their follow-up appointments. But My question mm-hmm. is, what about the providers, those those doctors who are taking care of these patients? Uh, is there a discordance with their patients? Because study after study has shown that if there is racial discordance, there's oftentimes lack of relationship building, uh, lack of health information exchange, and a lack of a positive affect. And that, uh, that dyad. So so I, I think we do need to look at that and continue to increase the diversity among our population in ophthalmology.
0: Dr. Conten, your, your thoughts? And and again, uh, we talked extensively about mom and we can talk more about it, but I think if you have some data points like a reference that will come out later this year may be helpful.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to go back to something Dr. Herndon was talking about with the racial discordance. And we know that per- particularly with preventive care and screening, that uh, there's a study that showed that Black men followed advice more carefully and more, uh, more compliantly when there was race concordance with their physician. I want to make sure that people don't feel disenfranchised as a provider who doesn't necessarily share the race of their patient, that they still can't connect with their patient. And I always like to think of it as, imagine that you were in a foreign country and didn't speak the language and how if you were in a situation where you needed help, whether it's in a hospital setting or someone just took your purse or what have you, and you were trying to communicate with somebody. And if you found somebody who spoke English, just what that would do to your heart rate, what that would do to your feeling of being taken care of because this person shares something with you. And I think it just may be, it just take a little bit more effort and just a little more thought for someone to try to find a connection with someone who doesn't share your culture or share your background. It can be done. And you don't have to be a black physician to take good care of a black patient. So I just want to make sure that we don't necessarily leave people with the impression that you can't give good care to someone who's not your race, because that's not what we're saying. Um, but back to what the Academy is doing. Yes, that picture that Leon was talking about we have that on a brand new webpage on the Academy website uh, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, aao.org diversity hyphen equity hyphen and hyphen inclusion. And we have all sorts of information there about the MOM program, the Minority Ophthalmology Mentoring Program. We're on about year five of this program, which brings in early medical students, basically as an open house to ophthalmology, and we started out as a pilot with about 14 students from around the country. We had so much support based on last year's fundraising and awareness that we were able to sponsor a class of 50 last year. And so like Leon said, it's a long tail. We don't see the results. I think Jay actually said that we don't see the results right away. But the there's a Rob Venable program sponsored by the uh, National Medical Association. And they had, I believe, 26 out of 29 of their mentees match in ophthalmology last year, which was a phenomenal amount. So, in addition to academy resources, I think that AUPO and the ABO are also devoting resources to diversity. I know the ABO has now incorporated some diversity inclusion questions in their continuing certification. And I know the AUPO is looking very closely at another choke point, which is the match process for underrepresented minorities. One other thing I will say about the about the website page is we've spoken a lot about racial disparities, but there are also other issues related to diversity, whether it's transgender or LGBTQ or people with disabilities or people who don't speak the language. And these are all areas of diversity that are also touched on the website. So I encourage everybody to take a peek at that. We uh, as ophthalmologists have a lot of private practitioners still. The average practice has about five doctors and our private practices are looking to us for information on how they can better serve their techs and their staff with diversity. So our um, AAOE division is working hard on Resources that we can provide our individual private practices that sometimes are a little bit out of reach for them, whereas academic settings have the resources of the academic center. We want to be able to provide those same types of resources to our private practitioners.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and Basil, you know, we 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 talked a little bit about when we talked about just the residency match in general and your impressions. What you we talked a little bit about this idea of trying to include more underrepresented minorities um, when possible into who gets invited for interviews. Um, the APO um, and Match just announced that virtual interviews will be in place for ophthalmology residency next year. Um, and I'm curious of your thoughts. I, I would think that based on socioeconomic factors that may continue to assist in sort of maybe hopefully diversifying the field by removing barriers. Um, I don't know if you knew that coming into this call but what are your thoughts on that continuing? Do you think that has any bearing in terms of what we'll see going forward in the future?
3: So, I did know that information. We had discussed it uh here in Cincinnati, and I think at least from a socioeconomic perspective, I think it's a good opportunity for applicants to not have to uh, spend a significant amount of money traveling and things like that and so i I think that um that potentially uh, makes it a more uh, level playing field uh, for the interview process. And I think one of the challenging things, um, and I think this is something that's human nature, uh, when we are uh, people that are on admissions committees, when they are looking at applicants, oftentimes people are trying to look for someone like themselves um, or look for someone that quote unquote fits the personality of the program. And That is fitting the personality of the program through that person's eyes. And I think it's really important to have a diverse uh, admissions committee. And as Dr. Fountain was saying, that's not just based on race, that's based on a lot of other factors. But having a diverse admissions committee will therefore change the perspective of which applicants um, are desirable and which applicants might fit the culture of the program. I think that's really important because. when you're thinking about yourself, you view yourself in a certain way, and if you're looking for applicants like you, and all of the people on the admissions committee are the same, then you're going to get the same type of resonance that you have on the admissions committee. So I think that 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 matters from a diversity uh, standpoint. And then I wanted to go back a little bit to what you were saying, Jay, about the pipeline. And I think one of the interesting things, or one of the things that's been talked about a lot is uh, standardized testing and um, how that plays a role uh, in diversity and and in admissions to different programs. There's been conversations that standardized testing uh, is maybe a proxy for socioeconomic status and and other things, and I'm sure that was at least part of the conversation in changing uh, the step one score to pass fail, uh, which will be happening soon. I know with everything that has happened with COVID, there are a number of undergrad institutions that are no longer requiring, excuse me, SAT or ACT scores. And they're looking at admissions now from kind of a more uh, broad perspective. So testing is not uh, viewed as importantly uh, as it was previously. And I think this is something uh, that potentially moves things in the right direction by viewing the applicant as a whole uh, you are able to take in a lot of factors that determine whether or not somebody would be uh, good at or a good uh, college student or medical student, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that, in and of itself, is a change that has happened uh, over the course of the last year. And I think that will uh, change the pipeline a little bit um, as it affects the access to undergraduate institutions.
2: Jay, if I can just chime in. So, one thing that's so important, also, with these admissions committees is that before the process even starts that each individual has an opportunity to educate themselves about these biases. There are several great articles that talk about implicit biases that we all have, and it's important to to come into the interview process with an open mind. And so I think that's really important and incumbent upon each missions committee, uh, trainee
0: committee to, to uh, consider that. Great point. Yeah. Dr. Fountain, any any other thoughts on that subject before we um, adjourn?
1: I think the implicit bias is something that, as Leon said, we all have, and there are a number of of implicit bias modules that people can take advantage of. Uh, Harvard has a very popular one, and I would encourage people to do that on their own and recognize where their biases lie, and I think only when you start doing that can you then kind of check yourself when you walk into a room to see a patient and recognize how even the way they're dressed whether they're male or female or what their accent is and really ask yourself you know am i treating this patient like any other patient am i making assumptions based on what i'm seeing or what i'm hearing and i think that's a a transparency that we all have to try to get to and this is a great time to do it because there are so many more resources made available to us. But once we take that implicit bias training, that's really just the beginning because there is still work to be done to make sure that we overcome them and work to broaden our horizons. And sometimes the right fit, you know, maybe somebody might not be the right fit, but they'll be still perfect for the program. I think having a right fit sometimes will also tend to, to homogenize the type of of applicant that you'll tend to accept over time. So I just go back to the the blind admissions for the Philharmonic Orchestras when they were trying so hard to diversify Mm -hmm. from from, uh, the white male uh, musician and how simply covering the person and, and putting up a shield so you couldn't see what they look like and how quickly they were able to diversify at least on a gender basis. So that really does prove how insidious and how uh, comprehensive biases can be.
0: Great point and a great example. Um, I think that's uh, something I first saw. I think Malcolm Gladwell, who has written a lot about these sort of biases and, and kind of gut reactions that can lead to, to problems. So um, I promise I would not take up too much of your time. We ran a little bit over. I appreciate all three of you taking the time to come back and discuss this. Uh, Dr. Fountain, we're looking forward to seeing those reports from the Academy and, and getting more information in the coming months. And again, doc, Dr. Fountain, Dr. Herndon, uh, Dr. Williams, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Jay.
1: Roger. Thank you.
3: Jay, thanks so much. Appreciate it.
0: As always, you can find this episode and many other podcast episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A Podcast.com. There are 298 episodes sorted by category. You'll find the original discussion of this topic a year ago, as well as this one and all episodes in between and before archived, searchable, really, really a great resource. If you want to go back uh, and listen to anything, or if you haven't listened to them yet, you can go back and listen to big trial result reviews, journal clubs, complication discussions, um, all very, very relevant. Uh, Remember that you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. You can subscribe either by receiving email updates and signing up on the website or by subscribing on your mobile device, um, either Apple or Android. And you can contact us in many ways, social media, email, retinapodcast.gmail.com or by clicking on the contact us link on our website. Thanks to Doctors Fountain, Herndon, and Williams for their time today. Thank you to Drs. Louis Kai, Angela Chang, and Mike Vinacasa for all they do for the podcast and this episode. Thank you, listeners, for listening, for inspiring episodes, for taking good care of your patients, and for being the great doctors you all are. This is Jay Schreeder, signing off. Good feeling.
1: This is straight from the cutters <laughs> mouth.
0: <laughs> Take care. Bye bye.